millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. British Foreign Minister Liz Truss has presented the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill to the UK Parliament and said we're acting within international law. Former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern speaks to Kira Doherty about why he wants the UK to seriously reconsider its position. I'd appeal to those uh, in Westminster uh, who understand, and there's a lot of them, uh, who understands what the Good Friday Agreement is, who understand what the protocol is, understand what peace in Northern Ireland is, um, uh, that they will stand up and speak out. Public sector pay talks between unions and the government began today after rising inflation triggered a review of the existing agreement. And later, a new survey has revealed a growing trend of coffee cup litter. Have you stopped using a keep cup? As always, your views matter to us. Join the conversation on the hashtag TonightVMTV. British Foreign Minister Liz Truss has presented the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill to the UK Parliament and said we're acting within international law. The British government's summary of its legal position on the Northern Ireland Protocol legislation states that the move is justified under international law because of the genuinely exceptional situation. Well, joining me now in studio to discuss this is Irish Examiner political reporter Aoife Moore, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Finnegale TD, Neil Richmond, and from London, GB News political editor, Darren McCaffrey. But first tonight, we can take a listen to what the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, and the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, had to say earlier. The British government has a tendency to big up decisions like this, and then once they announce them, to try and trivialise them. It, it goes to the heart of the issue of trust. Uh, and the European Union needs to have a trusted partner. But what it does is it creates unnecessary barriers on, on trade east-west. Uh, what, we, what we can do is fix that. It's not a big deal. Uh, we can fix it in such a way as to remove those bureaucratic barriers. OK, well, let's get a little reaction to that from studio. Um, Aoife Moore, to come to you first on this. It's not a big deal, says Boris. Um, it's removing the likes of unnecessary paperwork, he says, on, on checks um, between, you know, the, the UK and, and the North. There's also the issue around trade disputes now not involving the European Court of Justice. It's all a way of simplifying things uh, to please a number of people on this island. It's not pleasing uh, many people on this island, to be honest. I think everyone um, who's been following this would say today that they are disappointed, but they are not surprised in what's happened. There is a number of experts already saying that this will face legal challenges because this does break an international treaty. Also, we point out an international treaty that Boris Johnson himself negotiated and the British government um, passed through their houses. This is his oven-ready deal. 
if uh, you remember back to that time. Um, we heard from Simon Coveney today, you know, the Minister for Foreign Affairs. He had very frank words uh, with Liz Truss this morning. I think the phone call only lasted 12 minutes. And there was a lot of briefing going along uh, in the Irish government today that they are deeply unhappy, that Brussels is deeply unhappy. And we had a statement this evening from Maurice Seksovich who said that they would be now going, uh, going forward with the legal challenge that they previously had put up against the British government and they will be doing that in the next few days. Louise, let's talk about the impact all of this is likely to have. Um, the British government saying that the action must not seriously impair interests of other states. Uh, clearly, uh, you would believe that's not the case. Look, what they're doing is utterly reckless. And, you know, to, to come out one day and say, this is this is big, this is going to fix everything. And then the next day, eh, it's not a big deal. It's incredibly destabilising. It's destabilising for workers. And we see today uh, that uh, ICTU have a statement out along with the, the British TUC. And they're at one in saying this is utterly reckless. It is bad for jobs. It is bad for business. It is bad for workers. And it is an appalling way to behave. Um, and I think, you know, there's... You know, there's plenty of issues that, that Neil and I will disagree on, but on this, uh, there is unanimity right across the, the Parliament and almost, bar a very small amount, right across this island that, you know, the protocol has to remain. The protocol was working. We could see that with businesses. It was having a, a positive impact. There's no need for what Johnson is doing. And if truth be told, what he's actually doing is he's play acting for the benefit of his own backbenchers. This is more about a Tory internal row. And we can't allow the North or indeed this island to become collateral damage in what is effectively an internal party scrap. Darren McCaffrey, is that what it's all about? An internal uh, party row there um, within British government and this is how it's all playing out? I'm not entirely sure that's a fair characterisation. That clearly has a part to play in it. You know, Boris Johnson is under awful lot of political pressure here in London, uh, clearly from many within the Conservative Party, particularly uh, Brexiteers who have always wanted him to go further on the protocol. So yes, that is part of the picture. But let's be honest about this as well. First of all, there is a recognition, I think, on most sides that the protocol to date has not worked as well as it should have done. The EU have actually compromised and changed several things to date. The British government simply want them to go further. And second of all, you know, there are quite a large section, the majority of the unionist population in Northern Ireland who don't like the protocol in its current form. They either want to change or scrapped. The whole point of Northern Irish politics is about consent. There's clearly not a basis for consent in the Northern Irish okay. Assembly or amongst Northern Irish politicians about all of this. All right. I saw today that the SDLP were claiming there's a majority of MLAs for the protocol, but there's not a majority on both sides. And so the British government's case about protecting the Good Friday Agreement is a big part of that, and there is a definite right. element of truth as well. Darren, I need to come back to the panel on that. Neil Richmond, this is about protecting the Good Friday Agreement. That's the view from Westminster that certainly Boris Johnson is, is trying to put out. It's no big deal, and this is a fix. Yeah, it's absolute rubbish. It's nothing to do with the Good Friday Agreement. It's completely to do with internal po political machinations of a Conservative government that's in a lot of trouble. Is it about the leadership ambitions of Liz Truss or is it yet another distractionary tactic from a Prime Minister that has had a tired couple of weeks? At the end of the day, what Darren failed to say is there is a majority in the Assembly that backs this protocol. Every single business representative group in the North backs this protocol. There wasn't consensus when it came to Brexit in the first place in the North. So to hear the gov government in, U in London come out and say, well, no, this is about building consensus, they never saw consensus. 
Okay. It's an absolutely ridiculous idea to put it like that. Okay, well, a little earlier, former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern spoke to Kira Doherty about the ongoing issues with the protocol and his view on relations now between Ireland and the UK. Take a look. Bertie Heron, thank you for speaking to us on the Tonight Show. Uh, Boris Johnson was on radio this morning and he said the changes that would be brought about by this bill uh, would be a relatively trivial set of adjustments to the protocol. Do you accept that? No, I don't. Um, you know, he, He's saying that because he negotiated this deal himself only a few years ago. Um, but the reality is what he is doing uh, across a range of, of issues. You know, it's it's effectively setting aside um, large sections of the protocol and leaving very few of them uh, untouched. Uh, so you you cannot uh, describe it as uh, minor adjustments. And over the last number of weeks, I mean, the British government uh, spokesperson after spokesperson has listed. Um, the areas from state aid, from VAT, from customs checks, from uh, goods from the UK coming through. So it, it is an extensive bill. It is an extensive attack on the protocol. Uh, it it deselects um, uh, the protocol in so many ways. Does it breach international law, in your opinion? Um, by all the accounts, uh, it breaches uh, international law. I'd like to see the, we're both in a common law position, so it shouldn't be too difficult um, for our legal side uh, to explain um, where it breaches international law. But last week, I think it was MEP uh, Norman, uh, one of their own MEPs, um, said that it certainly breached international law. Uh, so um, if, if within his own party people believe it, it breaches international law. Um, but it's certainly, uh, whatever the, the fine details of the legal issue, it certainly uh, defies everything that was in the agreement between the UK and the EU when they were the negotiators. Uh, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the EU response to that is. Um, I imagine that we won't have too long to wait um, to, to see that because it, uh, I think Marcus Sokovich ha has been angling to give a response for several months. Um, so I, I think we'll see that fairly fast time. The UK are also arguing that this bill will protect the Good Friday Agreement. Do you think it protects it or does it actually breach it? Yeah, well, I, I, I just think that's nonsense. And to be honest, they know it. Um, you could use stronger language, but there's nothing in the protocol um, uh, that undermines in any way the, the Good Friday Agreement. In so fact, yeah, they're making that up. And if, if, if there was some fundamental flaw in either of them, uh, why was that not pointed out in, in the first place? So I'm afraid that, that that's as lame as an excuse uh, as um, the British will get, which really shows that it, it's nothing to do with that. that that's a, a line that's, I'm afraid, trumpeted out just for British public and people who don't really know what's in the Good Friday Agreement or don't know what's in the protocol either. At this point then, Bertie, should the EU retaliate? Should there be a swift and strong reaction, as your uh, former colleague Jim O'Callaghan said? Well, I, I think the EU um, uh, have been very lenient. Uh, I think they've been very understanding um, of the, the intricacies of negotiations now for what, for two years? And, um, you know... Two patients, some might say? I, I think so. I think... Like, they have not been respecting 
the European institutions. I have huge sympathy for the EU in this because they can't negotiate if there's no partner to negotiate with. And I mean, if you, if you want to be in negotiations, as I've been doing all my life, uh, it's a bit difficult if you go into the room to negotiate with somebody and there's nobody on the other side of the table. And that's effectively the way the UK have treated the EU now for eight months. I just wonder how difficult it is to negotiate parity with uh, the UK who say black is white and white is black. I mean, Brandon Lewis, for example, said this did breach international law in a very specific and limited way. Now he's saying it doesn't breach international law. I mean, how difficult is that? I'm the first to admit there probably are issues in the protocol that create difficulties for business. But that's not what the British government are trying to do. They're not trying to fix things. They're trying to say, listen, we, we shouldn't probably never have done this in the first place. We shouldn't have agreed the protocol. But a question that I don't, don't hear answered in Northern Ireland, you know, by those who are against the protocol, do they want to be in the single market? If they do want to be in the single market, you have to accept um, that there's going to be checks. Um, not a, a border down the IRC, but checks. And um, I, I'm afraid the bona fides of why the British government would even go down this road, are, they, they are questionable. So you do think the EU should respond, that they do need to retaliate at this point. Exactly what should they do? They won't pull out of the whole issue. I, I think the trade agreement, they want to have good relationships with Britain, but they will look at areas um, where there will be a, a meaningful punishment to, 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 the, to, the, to the British government. It's within their power to select those. Um, and um, I'd be amazed if they don't do that. Um, I, I hope they don't decide to, to say we won't do anything until um, the legislation is passed. Because, well, first of all, I hope the legislation is never passed. Uh, hopefully the House of Lords and Theresa May and others who understand these things in the British um, House of Parliament will, will, will fight against that. But uh, the, I, I think they, they have to respond in a meaningful way um, that the British know that they can't be rolled over time again. You mentioned um, Theresa May there. Do you think there's enough Tories who fear the reputational risk of this bill to ultimately oppose it? Well, I, I'd hope, uh, and, and, and in so far as my voice means anything, I'd, I'd appeal to those uh, in Westminster uh, who understand, and there's a lot of them, uh, who understand what the Good Friday Agreement is, who understand what the protocol is, understand what peace in Northern Ireland is, um, uh, that they will stand up and speak out. And, but, you know, we, we have to be mindful that within the Tory party, uh, there's my great friend Rhys Mogg, uh, who I've crossed uh, lines with a number of times when I went to the Brexit committee and I went to the Parliament uh, to point out a lot of the difficulties back over the last five years. Um, uh, there is Lord Frost, um, who is on another planet, and you know. So these are these are difficult. These are difficult people, and they're pro-Brexit, anti-protocol. You know, I, I, their support for the Good Friday Agreement is question mark, question mark. So, you know, this is a battle within the Tory party and um, I'd like to see that battle take place on this issue. Where does this all leave the DUP? Have they backed themselves into a wall, do you think, Bertie? Don't, I don't think it's in their long-term interests um, to find themselves um, with the Tories that want a hardline Brexit um, and that ultimately, and ultimately, and this is the big danger, uh, ultimately could see Northern Ireland out of the single market. I mean, you know, what, what right-minded politician would want to see that as an end result? Uh, I certainly wouldn't like to see it happen. 
And finally, Bertie, I suppose when you left office, relations with the UK were pretty good, very good, some might say. Um, now we've heard that they're at an all-time low. Does this does this sadden you? Yeah, I am saddened by that because, because I, I think through, through Theresa May, I mean, she, she came after my time, but you know, um, uh, Major Blair Brown. Um, uh, even back to Thatcher days, you know, there, there could be discussions at official level, even if they weren't always the greatest otherwise. But um, there, it's not me saying it. I mean, ministers after minister, Taoiseach, Tanishta, have all said that relationships are at, at a very low ebb. And um, I think the Irish government have been right. The Irish government have played a fair. And um, the British government have, have just said, no, this is not the game. And as I understand it, the relationship at official level is no better. And you mentioned the word game. Is that what this is all about for Boris? Yeah, I mean, Boris, Boris last week, um, a week ago, um, had to win a leadership vote. Uh, that morning, the vote was called rather surprisingly over, overnight. Um, and Rhys Mogg, uh, came out, you know, uh, battling very hard. Uh, as soon as I saw that, um, it, it, you didn't have to be a political expert to work out that that meant that there had been an understanding uh, with the European Research Group um, that he was going to play ball, that he was going to bring out this legislation and that they, they were on side and they'd vote for him. No doubt about it, he, he had said, listen, I bring out the legislation in a week and he has. The game. That's it. And he's in the job, and that's what it's about. And um, he knows he, he he knows the risk, and like he, he knows he entered into an international agreement uh, two years ago, and he's now he's now breaking it. And um, you know, if, if that makes him happy, he's in the job, and, and an international agreement is, is is broken. Well, that's a sad day, isn't it? Barry Hearn, thank you for your time. Thank you. My panel is still here with me. Um, Louise, just listening um, to what Bertie Hearn had to say there, um, you know, about, I suppose, how all of this could play out, the various players being not on this planet and not with it. But at the end of the day, this is what we're now faced with. So where do we actually go from here? Well, I think what needs to happen now is every effort has to be made to try to drag the, the Tories back from the brink on this. Uh, it's de de debatable whether or not the legislation is actually going to get through the House of Parliament. However, in the intervening time, there will be instability unless and until uh, this is resolved. And I think it, it behoves all of the parties involved, with the EU, the Dublin government, all of the, uh, all of the, the TDs, all of us together, to say collectively uh, to Johnson and to the Tory government, you need to pull back from this. But I want to address, if I could, just one point that Darren made in relation to consent and consensus in the North. The people in the North didn't consent to Brexit. They didn't vote for it. So, you know, this has nothing to do with consent nor consensus. And as I've said before, this has everything to do with internal Tory party machinations. And it is an utter disgrace that they're trying to drag the people of the North into their internal party row. Neil, ultimately, is this being seen as, uh, like, if we hope it doesn't come to this, is could this be seen by the British government as a bargaining position for them? It can be seen as many things the British government changes every day. Like, ultimately, I don't know if the British government will be talking about the protocol in a week's time. They are very, very adept at dipping in and out of Brexit, the protocol, the issues in Northern Ireland when it suits them. And then they go back to dealing up with levelling up or whatever domestic issue they're dealing with. This is the issue for today. 
probably won't be the issue on Wednesday in London. But ultimately, you have a situation where the EU has to react, the EU will react. As Aoife said, they'll likely unpause legislation that was paused as a message of goodwill during the autumn. They'll probably start other legislation too. And where this leads to, ultimately, is the potential collapse of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And if that does happen, the people who will suffer the most are the people of Great Britain, and it's their government they'll have to thank. Well, it's also the people of the North. I was just going to uh, say I disagree. I truly believe that the people who are going to suffer the most are um, the people in Northern Ireland, the people who the protocol affects the most and whose voice is consistently not heard at the table. There was a letter today signed by a majority of MLAs asking the British government not to do this. Our people will love under this protocol and this is not what we want. But it has become obvious over time, over years, that the Conservative government does not care for Northern Ireland in the way that they say that they do. And it is the people of Northern Ireland that, that pay the price. Everyone is screaming at them from businesses to the people, to the elected MLAs who were just elected last month. And they, they're going to power on ahead regardless. Claire, a really important part of this that many people have missed is this legislation actually removes the method of consent from the Assembly that was part of the protocol. This legislation takes out that four-year cooling off period where Assembly members, doesn't matter which political tradition from, have to vote in the protocol again. This removes it. So you have a government talking about wanting to protect the Good Friday Agreement and restore consent, but yet they're removing the mechanism from the elected representatives of the people of the North. Darren, um, isn't there an awful lot of contradiction in, in sort of what has been announced today? The issue around consent, as Louise pointed to there, you know, majority of the people in the North didn't want Brexit to happen. Um, that's no, no, the we, fact we can matter here. We, in, indeed, but we can have those battles, but we are where we are. And my point is that we are where we are, but there is no consent in Northern Ireland uh, for the protocol. A majority of unions, the vast majority of unions, don't want to see it. And your panellists can stick their fingers in their ears and ignore unionists in, in Northern Ireland, but frankly, there is no stormant because of the protocol okay, to so a large what's degree. Going to, what's going that, to happen that, now, Darren, is sort of well, saying, if well, you're well, saying, so, you know, the, and unionists, and, and, and yes, you're right, unionists in the North, are not all happy, some are, uh, not, are not all happy with the protocol, but what difference really is any of this going to make other than cause that instability well, so I, we've been talking about? Well, well, I think, first of all, it's, it's an attempt by the British government to try and address some of the concerns of those unionists. You know, this is an internal UK matter and clearly those unionists are pretty angry about it. Yeah, with but, implications for the you, island of you, Ireland. Well, well you, but of course there are. And there are Brexit has a, had massive implications for lost places. I'm not here to defend Brexit. I'm here to kind of set out where the British government are thinking. Let's just say, first of all, as your panellists pointed out, as Bertie Hearn has pointed out, you know, this is going to have a really difficult ride through Parliament. It's possible there'll be a big rebellion in the Commons. The House of Lords will almost certainly object. This is going to be a long process. Many think primarily it's a negotiating tactic. And all I would say on the protocol to date is there have been problems with it. And at every stage, on the whole, the EU have compromised. They've moved along. And maybe the positions actually between Brussels and London and trying to get to terms with some of the problems that persist are not that far apart. But also in the end, and we cannot ignore this, and your panel have not talked about it, is that unionists are not going to go back into Stormont unless there are substantial changes to the protocol. And frankly, that means Dublin had to be part of that process as well. The EU have to be part of that process, because if you genuinely are concerned about the future of Northern Ireland, that means you have to address unionist concerns as mm. well as nationalist concerns. OK, the DUP being at the nub of this, um, Louise. So essentially, we do have this stalemate in Stormont. Nothing is happening there. Uh, the people in the north do need a government. 
Mm. And Sinn Féin is, so, uh, stands ready so to, 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 to lead the because assembly. Of that, yeah, but because of that, is there a need for, for a renegotiation or talking around this or coming? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To some sort of yeah. Some sort of a, a settlement. Okay, but for eight months, the European Union have been turning up to negotiate and the British Tory government have been leaving them sitting in a room on their own. You cannot have a negotiation with yourself. If that was possible, this would be over now. So th- there has been scope for negotiation and that just backs what we, what all of us are saying essentially, which is that this is nothing got to do with uh, the North and everything got to do with internal Tory party machinations and that is what's causing this and that's what's driving it. And they may pick up this issue today, they may drop it the next day, but unfortunately it's the people in the North who are going to be left they're the ones who are at the business end of this. And actually, if they were thinking about them, they've had eight months to turn up okay. to talk about the issues. I mean, when, they, when it was necessary, issues in relation to medicine were overcome and an accommodation was reached. So, you know, the will is there on the part of the European Union. I just don't see any reciprocal will on the part of the Tory government. Are, are they likely to go anywhere with this? Like we had Maro Sefcovic saying the EU will not renegotiate the Northern Ireland Protocol Agreement, Neil. Uh, it's unrealistic. It would simply bring further legal uncertainty for people and businesses in the North. So what are we likely to see now um, in retaliation to this move? As as I said, you'll see the legal action unpaused. You'll see new legal action started. And there's this notion, and Darren has parted it there from the British government, that the EU have compromised every time the British government have made one of these dramatic interventions or threatened to break international law. Don't forget, before the protocol, there was a backstop, but the protocol was a reversion to what the EU proposed already. So there isn't this sort of notion that the EU needs to change their mandate and it's throwing everything on the EU. Liz Truss has not shown up for a Brexit implementation meeting since the 24th of February. There has been no engagement. There is no engagement on the paper produced by Mara Shevkovich in the autumn, which directly responded to the concerns of business, agriculture and community leaders in Northern Ireland. This is not about, oh, the EU, you have to turn around, you have to change. Are we That's looking at a potential unsettled. trade war scenario here then? I mean, if you're saying that, you know, that 
This is what they've come out with today. No one has turned up to the negotiating table over issues to date. Where, where can it go from here? Well, I'm, I'm loath to use the term trade war when there's an actual war happening in Europe. And I think that would focus a lot of minds when you think what people in the continent are dealing with, four million refugees in Poland, and yet we have yet another strop from the British government. But we do have the inevitable consequences conclusion that this will lead to the collapse of the trade and cooperation agreement. It's a very thin deal, but it makes sure that there isn't tariffs, there isn't quotas. You don't have 45% additional cost on Irish goods going into Great Britain and vice versa. And Aoife quite correctly said, the people who suffer the most, of course, are the people in Northern Ireland of all communities. But economically, the people in Great Britain who are suffering more than anyone else in the EU, based on the current crisis, will suffer even more again, thanks to the efforts of their own government to have their own little fight out loud. I think we can have a little listen to Simon Coveney now. He was speaking earlier um, about this. I presume the British government will have some justification for that. Um, I don't believe that will be valid, uh, but let's uh, see what the lawyers say on that. But politically, uh, this is a, an act of bad faith. Um, we have been warning against this course of action for months. So has the EU, so have individual capitals, uh, and so have the majority of political parties in Northern Ireland. Okay, um, that was Simon Coveney there. Like, essentially, in all of this, with what our government are putting forward, you know, it is between Britain and the EU. Mm -hmm. What can the Irish government do apart from being vocal on the issue? This is, this is it. We are not the negotiators here. It is between Brussels and London to hammer this out. And I become more and more desperate um, at every point that this can't be sorted out. You know, we the Irish government can make all the kind of diplomatic moves that they want to make in terms of making representations. And, you know, the Taoiseach and Simon Coveney are out at every um, chance they have to say, you know, this isn't what we want. But Boris Johnson's government isn't listening because it's not really, as we've all said, it's not really about Brexit. It's about playing to the backbench. You know, Boris Johnson probably only has around six months left of his tenure if we're going to go off the numbers in his um, vote with no confidence. So uh, Dublin's hands are tied here, but they wouldn't be listening anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, should we be very worried about it if there's only, you know, as Aoife was alluding to, a few months left of Boris Johnson in power and that they could flip-flop on this from one week to the next? And the alternative uh, could potentially be worse than Prime Minister Johnson. Um, that that shudder to think of that, really. But I, I do think, you know, he has a responsibility. He needs to be forced to understand that he has that responsibility. And I mean, I hope he reads carefully the letter signed by the majority of MLAs, which makes it very, very clear that they don't want this, that this will not work and that this is the wrong course of action. OK, we'll certainly be coming back to this again. My thanks to Jaron McCaffrey in London. The rest of the panel will be staying with me after the break. Is it time for a pay rise as a public sector? Pay talks get underway. Stay with us. Welcome back. Formal public sector pay talks between the government and unions at the Workplace Relations Commission got underway today against a backdrop of the rising cost of living. For more on this now, my panel is still here with me and we're joined via Skype by the Currencies Finance correspondent, Sean Keyes. Uh, but first, we can hear from Kevin Callanan um, from ICTU on what his members want. We're in a different situation now and our members expect that to be reflected in their pay packets. We're not... Uh, in a situation where I think uh, we need to be 
destroying consumer confidence, reducing domestic demand. I think what we need is a reasonable approach, and that's what we're here for. A reasonable approach. Uh, let's get more on this. Sean Keyes, to come to you first, there's a lot riding on these talks because of the hike in the cost of living. Tell us how much it's, it's playing into the conversation because it sparked indeed um, the beginning of these talks and the need for them because there was already an existing pay deal in place. Yeah, the existing, the old pay deal was was negotiated back in uh, late 2020, and obviously a very different time. You know, that was a time last COVID, a lot of uncertainty. The, con the economy was in lockdown. No one knew what was going to happen. So, the pay deal was fairly stingy. They they negotiated like a one percent annual pay rise. But year and a half later, we're here. Inflation's running at over seven percent. It hasn't been at quite this level since the early 80s, and the unions are saying. Maybe really, maybe reasonably, that uh, the cost of living has gone up, living standards have gone down. They want more money. Um, from the government's perspective, the government it, it can't say that it doesn't have much money or that it's short because uh, you know receipts, government receipts are very strong at the moment. So I think for both the government and and also for the unions, the key question is: this inflation is it temporary or is it permanent, or is it going to last for the next number of years? Yeah. Uh, depending on what you believe on that, if, if you, yes, go, yes, sir. Yeah, sorry, Sean, just on that, I mean, how much do they want? They haven't explicitly said it, but we have heard around 9, 9 or 10% from some unions such as Forza in terms of a pay increase. Uh, what are they likely to get? Well, again, it depends on that question of how long, how permanent do you think this, uh, this inflation is going to be? So if you're the government, so, okay, the, the forecast for this inflation from the ECB, from private banks, from the market are that inflation will settle back down in the next year, year and a half, down to maybe two and a half percent. So if you believe that and you're the government, the very last thing that you want to do is to lock in uh, an inflation deal that runs for many years that's running at well, nine percent is obviously extremely high, but anything close to seven percent would be far too much from their perspective. Mm. So for the governments, they're thinking, okay, uh, inflation is probably going to settle down Maybe let's negotiate a short-term deal. Maybe a one-year deal. We can be maybe be generous. It's only going to be one year, and then from then on, hopefully, when inflation will settle down, we can negotiate a longer-lasting okay. deal from that point on. That's a tricky one to achieve, though, isn't it, Neil? Say you throw money. Um, it's not throw money. I mean, because people are, as Kevin Callan was saying, there we need to see the rising cost of living reflected in our pay packets. But I mean, do you really believe that the cost of living is going to go back down, sort of two percent next year? I mean. It, it would appear that we are in here, in this, unfortunately, for the long haul. Well, there is potential. I wouldn't necessarily we're in here for the long haul. Obviously, a lot of what's happening with inflation across Europe at the moment is driven by the war in Ukraine, by the energy shortage. We have to accept that inflation is averaging about 7.6% in Ireland at the moment. It's 7.9% average across the EU. Of course, that isn't... Um, that's going to be extremely difficult to keep up with based on the existing agreement. So I fully understand why the, the, the clause was triggered to go into the WRC, actually quite support it. And I think, yes, we do need to look at it, but perhaps we need to have a clause that after a year, if an agreement can be reached, it gets looked at again. And I think this has to be part of a wider package. It's not just about uh, pay increases. That's very important. And I, I don't, I'm not against them in any which way, but I also want to see a real measure in the budget in relation to taxation and reducing that burden across everyone, public yeah, and, and private sector. We've heard um, that flag being flown um, on that one. Um, what would you think, Louise? I mean, as we heard, we've heard from some union, unions about double-digit pay increases they're looking for, would that be something Sinn Féin would be in favour of? 
Well, I think at this stage, uh, nobody is surprised that the unions have triggered that clause. And, you know, in case anyone has forgotten uh, when things were different, the government were very quick to cut the pay of serving civil and public servants and indeed cut their sick leave entitlements uh, and indeed cut their holiday entitlements. So, you know, the, the, there has to be a quid pro quo in every single agreement. And the one thing that people don't talk about, and it drives me mad, and I was for a very long time a member of the Public Services Committee of the ICTU, and uh, a couple of years ago I would have been going into to those talks is nobody talks about the productivity. So the deal and the percent, that's one line in any agreement. Everything else, you know, is around productivity, around workplace changes, around, you know, changes to work practices. All so of that stuff that the pay increases. Give. But I think they need to quantify that. that I think that, we need to look at what they're actually going to give product, for their pay productivity increases. But we also need to look at the cost of not keeping our civil and public servants. Our nurses are highly mobile. If we don't pay them mm. well and we don't keep them here, they will go to Australia and they will be met with open arms, they'll have to be replaced with private and agents, with private sector agency yes. staff, etc. That will cost all right. money. Aoife, um, what are your sources within government saying to you about all of this? Yeah, so the last we heard publicly was the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath. He was making kind of positive noises. He said that he wanted it to be fair both to the public service workers and taxpayers generally. And it kind of got to go back to what Neil said. He said, you know, there is a degree of uncertainty mm. around the global economy. And he thinks it's in the interest of all parties that a deal is done. I do think we will see some kind of public sector pay increase. What, uh, whether it's a temporary one or it's, it's dependent on inflation, I Could don't it know be yet. potentially divisive? Isn't They're that... always divisive. This kind of thing is always divisive. And that there'll be people who are not public sector workers yeah. going, hey, you know, I never got a pay rise in work and... Uh, you know, I have to deal with the rising cost of living and trying to pay, pay a mortgage the, when we see the interest the rates go up. The government know that they need to do something. You, we're already talking about, I feel like budget talks gets earlier in every every year and we're talking about the budget already before it's even in the recess and they're saying about cost 11 packages and this, mm. that and the other. This could be a way of the government to sort out a cost 11 for a huge amount of people without, without having to do very much in the interim. Okay, um, Sean, just to bring you back in here, the... Uh, excuse or the reasoning for, for not doing a, a huge amount around, around wages is the fear of an inflationary spiral. And um, what's your take on that? I don't think that applies to Ireland. Ireland's too small. It's, it, it, it would make sense if you're talking about the whole Eurozone or something, because within the whole Eurozone, if everyone's wages went up, then our demand would go up and prices would go up and blah, 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 it would be like a, a bonfire. But in, when you're talking about just Ireland on its own, it doesn't really work like that because Ireland is tiny. It imports almost everything it, it buys. So if wages go up in Ireland, we just buy a load of imported stuff and it doesn't necessarily translate into prices at home. So, I mean, it's not to say that, that there's not good reasons not to not to limit wage rises, I suppose, but I wouldn't say that uh, a wage price spiral is one of them. Okay, um, Neil, just to come back to you and talking about the money to meet these demands, the government will shortly pu publish the summer economic statement that will set out how, how much money is available, including how much is available for new spending measures. Uh, is there enough there uh, to appease the unions, to appease those public uh, sector pay workers who are, who are making wage demands because of the cost of living and the cost 
of everything right now. I think, as Eve said, there's a potential to get an agreement, but the agreement won't please anyone. People are looking for a 12. Won't please anyone. Won't please everyone. Sorry, get that right. Won't please everyone. There will always be people. Gosh, far <laughs> no from saying that anyone. Agreement. No, no well, one's signed up to that, say, Neil. Not, you know, including me. The point is, you're not going to please everyone. And the whole point is, if people are looking for a 15, 16% pay increase, which I have seen and it was suggested on media about three weeks ago, if inflation's going on 7.6%, that's unrealistic. So it's about get balance in, getting balance in. It's looking at the taxation receipts, looking at we are in a volatile time. We will need a return of a rainy day fund as well to deal with the crises that we're going through. How long will this war go on? What will be the continuing energy squeeze? You know, there's a supply chain squeeze going on. We've all forgotten about COVID, but COVID is locking down China again. That's having a huge impact on the access to raw materials for building and prices throughout. So there's a whole balance there as well. Um, and, you know, are the government worried about, you know, I suppose the, the question is that where, where will all this go to and that, the, the, that divisiveness that we're talking between private and public sector workers and what needs to be provided, I suppose, from a government point of view on this, Louise. The demands are there and they're, they're coming strong from the public, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we've called for a mini budget uh, because there, there's a cost of living crisis that's affecting private sector workers and public sector workers. It doesn't have to be divisive. I would encourage any worker that is watching this, if you're not a member of a trade union, join your union, get active and demand a pay rise because that's what unions in the private sector are doing and that's what should be done. But the government need to match this. The government have two roles here. Number one, they are the employer for civil and public servants, so they have to behave like an employer to sit around the table but they are also responsible for the citizens of this state and ensuring that people can afford to heat their homes and uh, put fuel in their cars etc etc so we do need a mini budget because we're hearing far too many stories about people who are making hard decisions about you know heating their homes or paying their bills etc so we do need a mini budget for those people but the government is the employer they should come to the table in good faith and they should address uh, the, the needs of the civil and public servants who all we right. all lauded they worked very hard all through okay. COVID we know that we know that they deserve it's time for the government to step up now. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Aoife, Louise and Sean. Neil will be staying with me after the break. Will a coffee cup levy help to stop a growing litter crisis? Welcome back. Senators will debate the Latte Levy Bill tomorrow as retailers and environmentalists clash over the proposed new legislation. The Circular Economy Bill proposes to impose a 20-cent levy on all takeaway coffee cups. For more on this, Finnegal's Neil Richmond is still here. Climate journalist for thejournal.ie, Lauren Boland, is with me. And via Skype, we're joined tonight by Terry Fox, General Manager of Cupprint. Um, Lauren, to come to you first... Um, this kind of coincides with this um, business against litter survey that's out today, which shows a sharp fall in the number of litter black spots, but that these coffee cups are to blame for a lot of litter on our streets. That's right. And it's funny, you might not immediately think that coffee cups are the main culprit for litter, but actually that's what they found in the survey, that it's be one of the most prominent pieces of litter found on the streets. Um, and it's interesting because there's the, there's the environmental aspect of this idea of cutting down on coffee cups from the production side of it and the recycling side of it, but even just from the actual, the impact of when they're then lying on the street. And, you know, it's, it's not good for the environment and, and nobody kind of wants that in their town either. Mm. That's the environmentalist perspective on it, uh, Terry, when you hear that this is the reasoning b behind it all, is that it is to cut down on people using uh, disposable coffee cups. You make those coffee cups. So what do you think of this plan? 
we make um so we make a paper paper product paper cup and if that product which the power in this bill gives the the government the power to ban and i, I believe minister smith made a statement such that we will ban this product eventually in the next couple of years we start with a levy but we are going to replace this paper product with a plastic product, a plastic reusable product, but a plastic product nonetheless, something something like this product I have in my hand, which will be an option at every counter if you can't get your paper cup. So I ask which is worse, to have paper products being replaced by plastic products and uh, and this being on the street. And I've always, we've made sustainable products, we make certified compostable, certified recyclable products. and. I've always thought there was a lack of infrastructure within, let's say, Dublin City, that you cannot deal with your compostable, your recyclable, all you have is general waste. And if you walk around any European city, you will see various bins for segregation. So I think there's a huge amount of uh, work to be done on infrastructure, education and enforcement. Yeah, uh, Neil, on that, like this is an added tax for business and consumers. Why don't we just get bins right in our urban centres and, and elsewhere so that when people fi are finished with their coffee, they know where to put it. Like you've got a mix of compostable cups, then there are recyclable cups. They contain a little bit of plastic. It's all very confusing for people. And now the problem is they're being blamed for it and actually being charged at a time when we've got this rising cost of living that's affecting everyone, including businesses. Like the principle behind this is solid. It's the exact same model we use for plastic bags where we put a 22 pence levy on and therefore we started to eradicate and people started bringing their own plastic bags or hemp bags or whatever they were to supermarkets. That's the same principle here. And keep cups aren't all plastic. Some of them are made of metal, some of them are glass. And there's a full mixture. And what we saw with the pandemic is for understandable public health reasons, people were discouraged from using keep cups. In fact, you know, they weren't permitted to. So we saw an over return of uh, disposable coffee cups. And yes, many of them are compostable, recyclable. Not many of them are biodegradable. So it's about getting a balance. Is, is the bin thing, is a bin problem an issue though? Because that's what we're seeing when we see overflowing bins. It's usually they're overflowing with coffee cups and it's there's no good place for people to put them. Like the bin thing's only part of it. You can have a bin on every street corner. You can have a multifaceted bin, but bins will still get filled up. You can only empty them so many times a day. I remember I spent seven years on a county council where it was understandable council po policy not to add additional bins because it actually discouraged people from either using reusable practices or discour equally discouraged people from taking their rubbish home with them and sorting it properly. I do agree, however, that there needs to be a balance. We do need to engage with the retailers, with the restaurant sector and with, the with those who are looking to produce. So rather saying that we're against people coming out and saying, look, we oppose this circular economy bill, which is a lot more than about coffee cups. Let's work together. Let's come up to a solution. Take on those businesses that have really embraced yeah. it. Take them on and use it. Um, Lauren, like we do hear from people, and we'll probably hear from Terry, that like this will be catastrophic for Irish coffee sales. It's, it's, it's coming at it's coming at a bad time when business already have huge overheads. Now they're charging more. People may not be inclined to bother uh, getting a coffee. That's already quite pricey. You know, in the grand scheme of things, the argument from, from groups and from retailers is why are we paying the price of this when we've got a climate uh, crisis on our hands? Shouldn't it be bigger companies? Like, why does it come down to the consumer and small businesses? Well, I do think that it shouldn't all come down to consumers. And I think the, the, the balance you have to strike with a levy like this is that we know from experience from the plastic bag levy that they do, that they can work, but it's it has to be part of the bigger picture. And I don't think it is a, is a, is a, is a this or that question. It's about doing all of that at the one time. I do think it's important not to just 
um, target all of these measures at things that directly affect consumers. If we are going to be serious about climate action, and we have to be, because if we're not, we're heading for a complete disaster, we have to have wider measures that also target companies further up the scale and incentivize them to start changing their behaviours in terms of their production. Okay, uh, Terry, finally to you on this. We know that it's before the Shannon tomorrow. Politicians are discussing it. Uh, but also there's a group that is, is strongly against it. How do you plan on campaigning and lobbying against this? Or essentially, will it come down to us uh, having to pay it because that's the cost of polluting the environment? Well, I think, the, the, I think some of the data is definitely on our side. I mean, we just want the best environmental outcome, just like everybody else. So by replacing a paper-based system with a reusable system. Um, there's There's been studies, especially the Rambold study, which is the most comprehensive study based on primary data to an ISO standard, that suggests that there would be 2.6 times more carbon dioxide needed to support a reusable system and 3.4 times more fresh water to support a reusable system over a paper-based single-use right. system. Okay, there we'll have to leave it. We'll see uh, where all that goes tomorrow when it's up before the politicians. My thanks uh, to my panel, to Lauren, to Neil, uh, to Terry who joined us. That's it for now. Kira will be here uh, tomorrow night from all the late team though. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 